When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm Phil Kirkbride and today joined by Dave Prentice, Adam Jones and Gav Bucklands of Chew the Fat over all the major talking points and recording this pod live from Bootle Newstrand Shopping Centre. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. We're at Old Hall Street in Liverpool of course and here to discuss the week that was for Everton and as ever major talking points. Um, to discuss on the agenda today obviously Angelotti um, a little more insight into the man and and, and how he's having the, an excellent touch with Blues fans out and about on his travels as we mentioned in uh, in surprising locations shall we say this week um, also on the pitch his declaration today that next season the Blues should be challenging for Champions League qualification we'll ask the, the panel if that's realistic a new contract for Mason Holgate. How many of us would have envisaged that at the start of the season and potential new deals for Leighton Baines and Calvert-Lewin? So we will discuss that. We will also discuss what does the future hold for Bernard? Some interesting comments from the manager early in the week about the games he sees him playing in and more importantly, the games he sees him not playing in. Uh, and of course, a little bit about Jenk Tosin and his bad luck with injuries. Um, but let's start with, with Carlo Preno and, and look, we all want every manager to have a connection with supporters. Ultimately, it's what happens on a pitch on a Saturday, which matters in results and where we are on the table, etc. But how is Carlo going about in such a short space of time? How is he going about connecting with supporters as he has done? And, and why is there such um, an affinity, if you like, between the supporters and the manager so soon? I think because of what he's achieved already in the game. I mean, I'll go on to mention a number of other things that he's done very, very quickly. Uh, but he's an elite level manager and Evertonians aren't soft, you know, so they, they appreciate that. They know what he's achieved in the game. So whilst they were very slow to warm to admittedly elite level figures in football like Ronald Koeman, you know, so his achievements as a manager, you know, so couldn't live up to what he achieved as a footballer. So, and he'd had so many false dawns in the past as well. Uh, it was almost like, uh, well, come on, you know, so wait and impress us before we finally, you know, so sort of give you our seal of approval. So, you know, that happened certainly uh, with Ronald Koeman, you know, certainly happened with Marco Silva. I can't remember a, a song, you know, being sung about either of those. And yet Carlo turns up on the doorstep and he's Carlo Magnifico in about uh, two or three weeks, you know, despite, you know, within his first couple of games. Um, so I think that's down to the fact that Evertonians appreciate what he's achieved in the game and what he has the potential to achieve as Everton. I mean, in a short space of time, he's already got Everton as I think it's third or fourth in the form table. Um, okay, lost to the teams that you would probably, I wouldn't say expect us to lose to, but the teams that we have been losing to, you know, routinely over the last like 10 or 15 years. But he's certainly turned the others around very, very quickly. Uh, and he's also just saying the right things. I mean, that business on Sunday, uh, marching out onto the pitch to confront the referee, has done him absolutely no harm whatsoever amongst yeah. Evertonians. All right, it's cost him eight grand to hit him in the pockets. Um, but not, not cheap, he called no, the no, fine. No, he's absolutely <laughs> spot on. Even on his wages, that's a significant dent. You know, so. <laughs> Maybe not. Shops, shops in Waitrose around the corner from us. So yeah, he, he won't know. Oh, he clearly yeah. won't miss it. Yeah. But um, no, it's. Uh, that, that, I don't, wouldn't say it was calculated, you know, because so, clearly he was burning with a sense of injustice. And I genuinely don't think that he overstepped the mark. You know, he went over there to ask, yeah. you know, so why have you given that decision? He's asking the wrong man. He should have been asking John Moss, obviously, you know, so sat in a bloody porter cabin somewhere. So, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, Chris Cavanaugh wasn't the man to answer his question. And it was all a little bit petulant as well, the way he reacted to that. But the fans saw that. They'd actually seen it themselves on the big screen in the corner of the ground. And so it was quite reassuring to see a manager willing to fight the corner uh, of what, you know, basically endorsing what they were thinking. They had that when Duncan was in charge and, you know, so, you know, got very, very much behind him. And likewise with Carlo. So a number of things he's done. But at bottom line is he started to win football matches. I mean, I was looking at the, uh, I mean, all kinds of like stats are doing the rounds at the moment. But since he's arrived, he's only been in charge nine games. 
And yet Everton, a third in the Premier League for goals scored, fourth for total attempts, fourth for shots on target. There's an interesting one. First for headed attempts. So, you know, the, the style of football, a little bit more direct maybe, but not to the point whereby it's, you know, so route one football at all. Um, second for corners, second for successful crosses, first for set-piece goals, so clearly not a lot of work going on on the uh, training pitch. And then fifth for shots on target faced, so, you know, so some work being done defensively as well. So bottom line is, fans are enjoying what they're seeing on the pitch. And when that's allied to his reputation as a manager, I think it uh, gives you a, a pretty good, you know, warm glow about what he's, uh, what he's done already. I'd, uh, same question to you. Why do you feel Carlo has been able to connect with supporters in, in what is it, three and a bit months, is it now, whatever it is, mm. since he arrived, you know, so quickly and, and you know, have that have that connection and, um, and relationship with them so soon? I think it's really hard to argue with what Preno's just said. I think I completely, completely agree with him. I think the, the main thing for me is when Ancelotti stepped through the door, obviously the weight of his past experiences was a major factor in Evertonians being won over instantly by him, you know, with past managers, you know, like, like Marco Silva, you know, Sam Aldice never stood a chance, but, uh, you know, uh, Ronald Koeman as well, you know, their managerial experiences uh, previous to Everton still left a little bit to the imagination, you know, Everton fans, you know, some sections of Everton fans at least weren't totally sold on the decisions to get them on board, but nobody could argue with, the achievements that Ancelotti had when he came when he came to Goodison, nobody could have imagined even a couple of months ago that Ancelotti would consider coming to Goodison, let alone him actually stepping through the door. So I think Evertonians instantly loved to see him there. And then the way he's just ingratiated himself in the city as well. You know, the, the day after he signed, you saw him walking up and down Castle Street, <laughs> just, you know, getting a feel for the city and, you know, taking selfies with supporters and everything. And that that makes that makes a difference that, you know, if fans can see that he is individually trying to meet them all and he's trying he's trying to strike up that connection with them on a, on a personal level, then that, that makes a huge difference. So that that all happened before he first stepped on the touchline. And then obviously when, he's, when he has stepped on the touchline, Everton fans have responded. He's responded back and forth with them. And it's it's been a really nice little cycle. And as Preno said, you know, we're seeing performances on the pitch improve now. Uh, we saw him get very animated with the official at the end of the United game. And that just shows he cares, doesn't it? You know, he's done that big interview with The Telegraph uh, that got published today. And uh, he said, you know, he sees this project very similarly as he did to Napoli. You know, he, he, he came here and it wasn't about the money. It was about him feeling a real connection with this club and this project. And, Everton, and at the end of the day, Evertonians love to hear that from any manager. So the fact that it's coming from such a world-class manager as Ancelotti, I think that's that's really played a huge part. Um, and of course, he will be on the touchline on Sunday, um, accepting the fine and the charge from the FA, um, as Preno alluded to, but no touchline ban, so he will be in the dugout um, on Sunday. Gav, I'm just going to read you a quote of Ancelotti's from, from the interview today. <clears throat> this part of England is different to London. It's more friendly. <laughs> it's not hard, is it, really? Though <laughs> 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 no, I do like London. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he's drawn on his 20 years' worth of experience as a manager, isn't he, with top clubs? I mean, the challenges he faces at Everton are different, but far less than what he's faced at other clubs in terms of managing the support, managing the, the directors, the you know, the chairman, etc. So he's done 20 years of experience, he's applying it well. You know, and, and you would expect that. You would expect Carlo to do that. I would imagine that was one of the one of the, the reasons why he attracted to him. You know, everybody knows he's, he's a Bain and he's a funkular, you know, and he's uh, you know, he's very popular, very, very popular with the press, very popular with players. Um, you would expect what we're all talking about here now. I am not surprised. I would expect Carlo to be like that. Are the things, you know? the things that he said in that regard, yeah. particularly that quote and other things, is that that's not not a, a cynical ploy, is it? That's no, it, no, it feels no, that's very just, genuine. That, that's a, to yeah, me. yeah, that he's always been like that. I think also what I would say, and and I'm just wondering, in the, you know, if we get a come to you know the future in a bit, is I'm just wondering how big them sort of two or three games under Duncan. Will look like in a few years' time, where 
Carlo coming in straight after Silva is a slightly different thing to Carlo coming in straight after Duncan's had like two or three really good results and got the old fire in the belly yeah, the supporters absolutely. back and all that. You know, a bit of a feel good factor in that Carlo's taken forwards. That's I think's made it a more e- you know more easy job in terms of getting supporters on side than sort of taking over from the the sort of the disappointment yeah defeats, having yeah. other derby defeats. So I'm just wondering that that period of 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 two or three games under Duncan might be really significant in a few years' time. Well, and it's helpful that he's, he's kept them as well on, on the staff. Well, how many how many that, times before he lost count the number of times that Carlo has mentioned Duncan's yeah, spell? Yeah. So again, that's part of the engaging with the supporters, isn't it? You know, giving the supporters what they want to hear. But I think Carlo would put the point Duncan as well because he's not soft, is he? Mm. <laughs> because he's capable of doing He wants him to do the job, you yes. know. So I just think Duncan's uh, role in this sort of feel-good factor has to be uh, taken into account. Mm. And... Carlo knows how to press the right button. He's experienced enough, but I don't think he's cynical there. He is, he is what he is, isn't he? And he's an, I mean, even with Chelsea, he was enormously popular, wasn't he? Absolutely. Well, yeah. I think so. what's interesting is whenever you read interviews from former players, Vangelotti is the, I think all of them always say he's a fantastic man manager. Yeah. And I think that just shows that he can, he's so good at building these sort of connections on a personal level that yeah. he's, you know, he, he's got no problem doing it with fans as well. That's what his management's about, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I, I tell you, if, if what he's doing is not a cynical ploy, what is a cynical ploy for me is the Premier League. Accept this misconduct charge, get your £8,000 fine and you can sit in the dugout against Chelsea. Accepting a misconduct charge where yeah. I don't believe he actually did, you know, so show any misconduct. It's yeah. just that that was quite cynical, that. Or you can sit in the dugout at Chelsea, provided you pay up this egg grand and, and accept the charge. It goes away quite nicely then. Mm. Yeah. Without, is you know, that Carlo being pragmatic again? No? 100%. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I was comparing it to Moyes got fined £8,000, didn't he? It's the standard. And, and, and it's on the, the strange uh, off had against Manchester United as well, mm. wasn't it? Which is, uh, <laughs> you know, what a coincidence, didn't he? And, and Moyes oh, was, was the 3-3. Three, 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 yeah. yeah, and that was a proper yeah, round, yeah, wasn't yeah. it, by Moyes on the pitch where, you know... Um, you know, he was uh, really going for it on the pitch. Him, him Steve Round, Steve Round was as well, like, you know, mm. all finger pointing and all this type of stuff. And Moyes was going red in the face. Yeah, it certainly you know, wasn't yeah. like that. And I yeah, it wasn't like that last it? week, you know. I was discussing this with somebody earlier in the week and I appreciate the circumstances were different. Sunday was a, a, a 1-1 draw and at the end where we felt we'd been denied unjustly a winner. But if you if you go back to when we got beat 3-2 at Newcastle last season and Silva went onto the pitch and confronted the ref and faced a misconduct charge in the FA and got fined, etc. There wasn't the same level of support, was there, from, from the fan base for Silva? Who'd effectively done the same thing. I'm just intrigued to what, why we think there's a difference. I, I, I think the difference on, in, on that individual case as well, I think the difference is that we'd thrown away a two-goal lead mm-hmm. in that scenario yeah, yeah. and instead we'd lost the game uh, and then I think that had still come after a period of big unrest for Silva hadn't it you know over the Christmas period and then yeah. into like mid-February let's say you know Sil- there was real there was real pressure over Silva even then and he'd done well to turn it round through our home games but mm-hmm. the away form hadn't really improved at the same time so there was still that lingering bit of doubt which you know eventually lingered all the way to him getting sacked the following December. So I think, yeah, the, the situations are maybe a tiny little bit different, but yeah, it, it does amount to the same action on the pitch. Yeah, I would agree with that. No, just interesting. Prano, you know, as you, as you um, explained very well in, in your opening remarks, ultimately it's what happens on the pitch and it's, and it's results, etc. How, but having said all of that, how important a factor or an element of everything we've discussed about Carlo and his connection with, with the supporters is the fact that he has found a home on Merseyside and hasn't followed the path of recent managers in living in Manchester. Does it make a difference? It's, it's subtle, uh, but I think it does subconsciously make a difference. Yes, people see him again more as one of us, you know, so he lives in the same, you know, so area, uh, he shops in the same shops, he wanders around the same, you know, so stretch of streets and what have you. And it's almost like he, he wants to be part of the whole setup rather than trying to distance himself from it. Um, do, you, do you think that's him trying to uh, periodically gauge the temperature of, of, of a fan base maybe? or Possibly, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, the, the area where we're told he's living is a very, very nice part of Merseyside. So, you know, so you certainly wouldn't be, uh, you know, rip, turn your nose up or wanting to live, you know, sort of around there. Um, but it also helps as well in that, yeah, you can gauge the mood of what the support base are thinking. I often wondered about Marco Silva. I remember sitting down with him once trying to 
Lovely conversation. Yes, a nice interview, 20 odd minutes worth uh, of interesting stuff. But when I was asking him about, you know, so where he was living and what, you know, whether he had any of these kind of conversations with fans and he like clammed up very quickly, didn't want to give anything away about his personal life Mm -hmm. at all. Certainly didn't want to say where he was living. And uh, the the Everton officials that were, you know, were monitoring the interview again were just as uh, circumspect afterwards. So I still don't know where he was living, Cheshire somewhere, I believe. Um, So it's almost like it's an escape hatch it's almost like, okay, if things aren't going as well as we want, I can get away somewhere. I'm not part of this. And that doesn't really make you feel like one of us, you know, whereas if you're here, if you're, you know, bumping into fans all the time in your daily business and you're basically being told very, very quickly what they're thinking. And, you know, Carlo's big enough to handle himself and, you know, sort of live up to those pressures. You know, he's pre- he's managed, you know, some of the most pressurised uh, football clubs in Europe. Uh, so, yeah, it probably helps him a little bit to actually understand, you know, so what people are thinking. Well, of course, Koeman, one of Koeman's reasons for not living in around the city or, or Merseyside was that, he, you know, ultimately he wouldn't be able to go for his tea without getting, <laughs> dis- without getting disturbed, would he? And, and stuff. But, but Carlo doesn't seem to be worried about that. And, you, you know, who, who's the bigger footballing star? Carlo or Ronald Koeman, you know, who, who's going to get bothered... More, if you like. No, I think I think yeah. fans are quite decent around here as yeah, well. Aren't they? You yeah. don't see too many, you know, sort of managers and footballers pestered that much. No, you know, Jürgen's coped with it all right, hasn't he? Mm. You know, I think, uh, I just think what you're seeing is just the product of 20 years of experience, isn't it? And Carlo, that's, that's pretty useless unless you know how to apply that experience in your environment, isn't it? And that's what Carlo was doing, isn't he? He's, he's uh, applying that experience. All the lessons of those twenty odd years in management, and, and at times a high pressure player as well, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. As well, he was playing for AC Milan, you know, when they were top best team in Europe. Yeah. So it's it's thirty or forty years of high pressure in football, and and if, if you've got your wits about you, can you can use that to your advantage. And Carlo is, but he's just a genuinely decent guy. Having said that, I did look quite threatened when he walked on his pitch with his overcoat on, like side, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's yeah. what. Like a machine going out or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like, I, would, I would not have wanted to be Chris Cavani yeah, in that yeah, scenario. I saw there, that's why he's been hugely successful. A nice guy, you know, I'm genuinely nice, everybody said. But at that moment, you know, he didn't overstep the mark, but you, you saw that hunger and desire he, yeah. that he's prepared to go yeah. on the pitch. And he did, that's another side of Carlo that you don't, you that's wouldn't ever say. Edge, yeah. yeah, that, that, you, you know, that. And he was really having to go within sort of boundaries of decency. Um, well, not going to the FA. Yeah, not going well. to the FA, but, you know. Um, and there was a different side, man. I think that, I think it was that. that and I, that, that wasn't done for playing for the gallery. Absolutely not. That was no. done for Carlo's a winner. Yeah, because yeah. Carlo's a winner, you see. No, and he wasn't, he wasn't, I know some managers who would do that just to play to the, yeah. play oh, yeah. to the supporters, but no, that was just Carlo. Again, genuine versus cynical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying. Carlo was doing that because he wanted to win the football game yeah. and he felt he was wrongly. No, it's uh, interesting what you say there about, you know, sort of mixing with the, the public and, you know, sort of yeah. being seen out and about. Arguably the highest profile manager in the Premier League, well, not arguably because he is. And, you know, he's perceived as being the most charismatic manager out there. People hang off his every word as Jurgen Klopp. Yet when he first arrived, uh, Liverpool were quite cute in this as well. They made a big deal about him being an ordinary man of the people, yeah. being seen playing bowls around the corner in, uh, in Formby, um, walking his dog down the beach. Apparently he's a regular in the fresh. He isn't, you know, because I've seen him there twice, I think, and you, I am. You heckled him out there. <laughs> <laughs> and no, he pops in the cave very, very, very occasional. Um, but it's almost like, you know, it's reinforcing the fact that he's an ordinary fella who just likes to goes about his business and is happy to talk to people. And he is, you know, so he is, you know, so good with fans when you see him. But it doesn't do any harm to reinforce that and to publicise that and to push that out there as, as, as an issue. And uh, Carlo isn't doing that, but, you know, he is being seen out and about. And, you know, he hasn't got you know, people from Everton's media team following him around and actually turning out into stories. But because of the world that we live in, because of social media, it is becoming a thing very, very quickly. And it uh, doesn't do him any harm whatsoever. I'm still desperate to know why he was in Bootlestrand, though. What need does Carlo Ancelotti have to go to Bootlestrand? Well, he, he sent a very firm message to the uh, proprietors of Bootlestrand uh, 
shopping centre that the parking isn't up to scratch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parking <laughs> is not great. I've just got to get a five grand fine for that. I was brought. I was brought up in Bootle, and believe me, it's a terrifying. It was a terrifying place to wander around when I was like eight and nine years old. I can only hope it's. Uh, who, who cares? Yeah. You know, we also said that the place is full of Evertonians and yeah, sort of like, oh, you know, yeah, all right, yeah, it's good. Now, I, I, it's been a good week for Carlo, hasn't it? In, in many different ways, uh, and but it also reinforces that having a manager that profile at the club. It just brings the profile of the club up as well, doesn't yeah, it, really? Yeah. I know, I'm going to say, you know, I said it was against appointments. I'm rapidly being, at this stage, thinking actually, well, maybe it was the right appointments after all, but but the, the hard work for Carlo was still to, uh, to begin, I think. You know? Indeed. That neatly, Gav, as ever, brings us on to the next topic. Carlo yeah, in the same interview. <laughs> talking very, very boldly, very enthusiastically, about a Champions League qualification challenge next season. Um Adam, we'll come to you. Is that realistic? Uh, I appreciate we're looking at the crystal ball. We don't know who we're going to sign. We don't know what the squad's going to look like. But given that in the last two seasons, we've been eighth, eighth and seventh. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an average points in those three seasons off the top four of 19. Mm-hmm. Um, is challenging for the top four next season realistic? Well, realistic, yes. And he said qualify for the Champions League, not the top four, which is interesting because... We still don't know what's going to happen with Man City. Point, yeah. As things stand, we're only five points off the Champions League right now because we're yeah. only five points off Manchester United. Yeah. So you could argue that it's a realistic possibility this season if Everton can, you know, recreate the sort of form that Ancelotti had when he first took over. You know, last couple of games have been a bit more disappointing in terms of results, but performances have still been at a high level. So if we can start turning them into results again... You, there's no reason to suggest it can't be realistic. And then, of course, we've got an important summer transfer window ahead of us. Think, feel like we've said this for Seven like us. Yeah. yeah, the last <laughs> last five, yeah. ten years. You know, it, it 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 is another important summer transfer window, not just in terms of getting players in, but getting players out as well. Obviously, getting players out will determine what kind of players. Brand this the Royal Blue getting players out podcast. I think. Yeah, you know, yeah, times yeah. we've spoken about it. Yeah, so you know, if we can if we can add quality to the squad, you know, get you know three or four you know, top quality players in across the summer, which, you know, the pull of Ancelotti will be massive in terms of that. You know, if if Everton are perhaps in, you know, at least in Europe next season, you know, maybe we've got one of the uh, Europa League places, then who's to say it's not it's not realistic next season? And to be honest, if a manager of the experience and European calibre of Carlo Ancelotti is saying it's realistic... Who am I to argue that, that, <laughs> yeah. that it's not realistic? Prenos, I same question to you, mate. You know, it's it, it would take. You know, we don't know where we're going to finish this season, of course. But based on the last three, four seasons, it's, it's a leap. Based on top four, let's you know, let we have to still, for the time being, assume it's it, fourth place is Champions League. Can we do that? Can we transform a squad where we are now to, to Champions League uh, challenges? It's ambitious, uh, but I'm quite heartened to hear a manager thinking that big it like I said you know when he first arrived a few weeks ago it's all about changing mindset and changing perception and for an awful long time we've had this like sense of fatalism so much so that you know we've even got a phrase now Everton that you know so for when things go wrong uh, oh it's Everton that and that that's wrong you know we need to wipe that away and we need to start thinking positively and start thinking back to you know the kind of mindset Evertonians had when me and Gav were young men going to watch uh, football matches wasn't that long ago yeah. Yeah. But, you know so managers were given three years to get yeah. Everton challenging for trophies you know so and if they weren't challenging for trophies and winning things they were sacked and moved yeah. on yeah. as was Gordon Lee you know so and brought in a manager who did do exactly that Howard Kendall um, it's been a long time since that happened and it, it's good to hear a manager thinking that positively and that boldly for a long time we were told it was out of reach because of the financial restrictions on the football <coughs> club because other football clubs had gone out of our league in terms of uh, finances well Farhad Mashiri has been a game, cha- game changer in that respect okay financial fair play has now put different challenges on the football club but finance isn't quite the issue that it had been previously uh, so it needs a manager to come in and actually boldly say, yes, you know, so we can do this, we can do that. But more importantly, you know, so take steps to actually achieve it. Um, he's achieved those things in the past in his managerial career. So there's no reason why he shouldn't be thinking about trying to do that again. But whether he can do it, I don't know. But the bottom line is he's thinking about doing it. And that's very, very important. Gavin, any, any thoughts on, um, on, on that? I would say target? on this is that 
you just got to try and set yourself as points target for the season and see where that takes you because you can you can have a really good season, but if you've got four or five clubs who've had great seasons, which is like the Moyes time, wasn't it? Um, or 13, 14, uh, 13, 14. 14 under Martinez, then some of it's outside your control, isn't it? To, to, um, you know, I would say that next next year, I would say 65 points is always sort of the guideline for us to be in and around the Champions League places. So I think we're eminently capable of getting 65 next year and see where it takes us. Uh, I'd be disappointed if, um, you know, if we didn't get around that mark, bear in mind Carlo's ability and, and sort of the players we've got and some, hopefully some of the players we can bring in. Uh, and, and and I think, encouragingly, I don't see the teams in the round, though the top four actually making massive step changes, becoming you know far better than what they have been this season, to be honest with you. There's a couple of them, like Spurs, who are actually going backwards, never mind going forwards. And I think it's uh, got Artessas in, still um, sort of bedding at an Arsenal. So those traditional top four, top six, there's... You know, four of them are thinking the state of flux. Um, so that's encouraging. I don't think that's changing. So I think if we get to 65 points, take it from there. And he said challenging. He didn't say we will be in the top oh, no. four. Challenging yeah. and being in the top four can be two slightly different mm. things. But I, I eminently see us challenging for top four next year. I'd be disappointed if we weren't. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Royal Blue Podcast. Okay, good stuff. Um, so looking at the squad for next season, um, Mason Holgate definitely be in there, Preno, because 100%. this week he signed a new long-term contract. And deserves to be on there. Hands on heart at the start of the season. If I'd have told you by March, Mason Holgate would be rewarded with a new contract. Would you believe me? No, because you're going to pull out some old podcast probably from uh, <laughs> about September where I expressed reservations about him playing because uh, his first couple of appearances this season, uh, when he came off the bench a couple of times, he looked like a man that needed a run of games under his belt and uh, left me with my heart in my throat a couple of times. And not for the first time, I've been proved spectacularly wrong uh, because he's been outstanding uh, and has come to be the best centre-half uh, at the football club at the moment. Uh, Yerry Mina had a good spell, but it's gone a little bit erratic the last couple of weeks. Michael Keane, we're still not quite sure what we're going to get from Michael Keane, some good days and some bad days. But Mason Holgate has just been like, you know, just cr- like a limousine, just purring through games. Um, nothing ever seems like, you know, so rushed. He reads the game so well. Um, he's able to get on the end to a, I don't want to like uh, I mean, put huge amounts of pressure on his shoulders, but to a lesser degree, almost a little bit like Kevin Ratcliffe used to, you know, sort of read games and move around the pitch. Used to be able to sense danger before it was there and had the pace to actually get him into those positions to eradicate it. And he does that. Obviously, we know he uses the ball well because he's actually been employed in midfield on a couple of occasions. Uh, but no, he's been one of the big standout successes of this season. I mean, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, clearly the standout success. Uh, if you're talking about yeah, improvements that players have made, because, you know, again, Richarlison is another standout success. Uh, but Holgate's been excellent, absolutely excellent. And yeah, deserves to be a big part of the club's future. Adam, it's, it, you know, it's quite remarkable that, as Preno alluded to, he started the season third choice and many, many of us concerned that there wasn't a fourth option mm-hmm. to now being, he's got to be in the team. You know, we'd be worried on Sunday if he wasn't playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it just shows... Sort of amazing rise that he's had over over this season. I think like this time I was looking back this time last year. Uh, West Brom had just been beat four nil by Leeds, mm. and uh, Mason Holgate was playing right back, right back uh, for yeah. a team that eventually didn't get promoted. And uh, you know there were a fair few questions going around then, thinking, well, is he going to be is he going to be a Premier League player next season, let alone an Everton player? And uh, to go from that point to where he is now is is absolutely amazing. I think I remember watching him uh, away at Lincoln in the in the first, well, in, in our first round of the League Cup. I remember, like, I was seeing the same sort of issues as I'd seen from yeah. him last season. You know, he was comfortable on the ball, but he was maybe a little bit shaky defensively. But I think he's completely eradicated that from his game now. You know, there's, I still get that. I think there was one moment against Man United where he was, a ball went over the top and he was he was certainly first to it, but he had a man right behind him and he just produced an in, an incredible like sort of Cruyff turn sort of thing and he, he was back on the front foot and, you know, it's just that that sort of air of confidence on the ball that we haven't really seen from him before. Does it, does it feel like that, that long ago that some a Barnsley born defender was pulling off Cruyff turns <laughs> and sending us all uh, into <laughs> early graves? Telling tell us all to calm down. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he, 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 he does just carry himself 
so confidently and so calmly. Uh, and I think it's a credit to all of the centre backs that we, you know, we haven't really struggled in in that area. You know, we we, mm. we were, I think, quite rightly concerned at the start of the season that we only had three senior options rather than four. But you know, we were so comfortable in January that we were allowing Lewis Gibson, who was essentially the fourth choice option, to to go out on loan. Morgan Feeney as well went out on on loan. So you know, that's that just shows the level that these three have been playing. There's been a bit of chopping and changing. Uh, over the last couple of weeks as well, and I think you know Michael Michael Keane came into the side against Man United, and I thought he played really well mm. against Man United. So th- there's a real there's a real three way battle going on for those mm. positions at the minute, and I think that's that's perfect for Ancelotti. That's exactly what he's going to want. I think all three of them bring different attributes uh, to the side for whenever we need them. You know, I think against Palace it was Keane and Mina who played, and uh, I think we looked we looked fine in that yeah. scenario. So yeah, I, th- I think. Going back to Holgate, though, Holgate has just shown some incredible progression this season. And, you know, if he can continue on this path for the next, you know, two or three years, then we're going to have some player on our hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, yeah. Bob uh, Plano was saying, compare him to Kevin Macklin for sort of a similar career trajectory as well, because Kevin yeah. had been knocking around the first team for, for two or three years, well, yeah. playing full-back. Yeah. And he think about 83, he was going to go to Ripstitch at one stage, wasn't he, I think? And um, all of a sudden, sort of the autumn of 83, just flowered into this mm. top-class central defender overnight, you know, and within, you know, eight months, he was lifting the FA Cup at Wembley and 18 months later, two two or three trophies. But really, out of nowhere, you know, he was getting picked for, you know, he was getting picked for Everton, really, because he was playing well for Wales. It was just, uh, it was just strange the way Kevin, our most successful captain, you know, one of our greatest centre-halves, but first three years, he didn't really... He didn't really see that. Mm. Um, and Mason is a similar sort of tale. Being around the club for two or three years, being in, done okay, but you're thinking, well, I'm not really sure. Um, and uh, I'd remember, like, we've, you probably this is another podcast like Panos, you might want to delete from your, your <laughs> archive. Is, 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 <laughs> when you're saying, I was one of the ones, wasn't I, saying we need another centre-half, don't we? Thought, and yeah, I, think, oh, I, think, yeah. I think I remember saying, I'm a bit worried that our third one's mate, Mason Holgate. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, who six months later has, has proved to be, you know, the best of the three quite comfortably. And um, it's, it's just funny and, and, and still plenty of progression there for him. Of course, I, yeah. I want, I want to, as I say, I want to see a, a season. I you know, a season, and then he's had half a season. Or I think something in the like Premier that. League, he's played 59, 59 games yeah. this season. Not I mean, he's played this season. I think he broke into the side late October, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. Was it that Brighton game? Yeah. So he's had five yeah. or six months. Um, so um, I'd, I'd like, to, if we're still like talking like this in November time, yeah. I'd be saying, yeah, yeah, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm pleased. But the, 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 he's got, he's shown the capability. It's just a question of keeping his head on his shoulders. Also, I think Carlo is quite, a, you know, I say Carlo's not been sure to say a few things this week, has he? He was quite, uh, you know, he was quite complimentary about him. Absolutely. Sort of skipper material yeah. and all that type of stuff like Kevin Ratcliffe, um, which is interesting as well. Absolutely. Um, staying with con- the contract theme, um, is it the most straightforward decision the club will have to make uh, after the end of the season to hand Baines a new deal? <laughs> <laughs> of all the decisions the club have to make, that one surely is the easiest thing to do. G- given recent performances, absolutely. Yeah, We've discussed this so many times in here and I think yeah. Yeah, we've always wanted him to stick around. We're just never quite sure whether he'd be content with you know playing a bit part role, but it seems that he is. And to be fair, he's arguably performed better than Lucas Dean has. You know, so in recent performance, that performance against United at the weekend was was excellent. Um, he's just showing you showing us everything that he showed. You know, so throughout his career, admittedly, he can only do it. In, in bursts nowadays, and there were one or two moments during the game on Sunday where you thought he's, you know, he's absolutely the tanks run dry here. He's not going to be able to make he, that he run again. He was shattered by the end, wasn't he? <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Um, but just absolute class act. And he's also quite an influential character, a quietly influential character, you know, so off the pitch, in the dressing room, you know, so around the other players. And so if they're going to keep, you know, so that level of influence around the, uh, the club for another 12 months, that's only a good thing. Yeah, it's a no-brainer, that one. I think he commands a lot, a lot of respect, doesn't he? Just for oh, yeah. his sort of longevity at the club, and you know how how well he's played in the Premier League in the past. You know, obviously he's not like towards yeah. twenty ten to twenty thirteen level Baines at the minute, but you know he's still a top quality player who can step into 
step into the side, even for, you know, you know, he stepped in t- twice against Manchester United this season and has yes. played very well on both occasions, played played well against Arsenal. Uh, I personally, now that Luca Dean is fit, I personally wouldn't start him this weekend. I'd put Luca Dean back in because, you know, I think you've st- you've still got to factor in that Leighton Baines is 35 years yeah. old. Yeah. So he, he, can't, he, he shouldn't be playing week in, week out, especially when we've got, you know, France international left-back who is our top assist maker this season, uh, fit and re- ready. So I'd, I'd maybe throw in back him, but you know, in terms of backup, you're not get, really going to get much better than Leighton Baines at left back, are you? No, I, I, I saw about this a lot, and it, you know, it's one of them things that it, yeah, I agree. Um, I think he's got a number of things going for him, isn't he? It's like that. Um, first of all, he's at the club. Saves us money. <laughs> it means us, you know, go back to Penham's point before about finance, fair play, etc. Um, it saves us money. Um, he's a big influence, though, in a quiet, quiet way. So he's got all them force for him. Also, as well, we need to. Left back is not a priority for us, is it? You know, it buys the, the, it buys the, the club. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The downside to it is, is what happened if Luca Dean does his cruises in September or something like that. You know, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying. <laughs> Probably the wrong phrase is, but he yes. had a long term injury, and Baines has got to play 15, 20 games. You know, at a busy time of season, that's a different challenge for him. And also, as well, is you want competition for places, don't you? And I'm just thinking of Sadibi and Coleman on the other side, it's a slightly different dynamic, isn't it, this season? So I, I do think, yeah, definitely, because it buys us time, but there is like that sort of downside for me. Is ideally you'd want two. Two proper left backs giving each other competition, but I think he, he's well. I mean that 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 defensive clearance on mm. Sunday where he ran the full length of the pitch, mm. you know, right ended up playing at right back was was superb, wasn't yeah. it? Um, and and he had a bit of a shaky start on Sunday, but he ended up being close to being man of the match, didn't he? Really, and I thought, I just think, he, 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 I think oh, we've talked about experience with Ancelotti, and I think. Maybe now, because he's had to temper his attack and play a little bit more and be more measured going forward, he actually looks far better defensively now, Leighton. Yeah. He, he actually looks far more solid defensively than what he did, say, in that two, two, 2010, 2013. Change of formation has probably helped, doesn't it? Change of formation mm. has helped, but also the fact that he's using them years of experience yes. on, how, on, on how to defend. And he, he looks far better for me uh, defensively in terms of reading the game, which was always his, I wouldn't say weakness, was which was always a little bit of a... An issue for me at his peak years, but in in the great scheme of things, it's it's it is a it's an easy decision for the club to make, isn't it? And again, it's a popular decision for the club to make, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin will be next, but we will devote some quality time to speaking about Dominic's progression in another pod. Uh, Quickly moving on, um, Adam, we'll come to you because you wrote the story. Um, Paraphrasing Carlo Ancelotti, but he was asked about Bernard recently. And essentially he said, Bernard's better at those games, particularly at Goodison, when we're going to have control of the ball. Those mm-hmm. other games, not so much. Mm-hmm. It does limit, theoretically, everybody yeah. being fit, it does limit Bernard to not that many games a season. Really. Yeah, because away from home, while it's a bit different under Ancelotti, and I think we're playing a bit more of a possession-based style of football in general, I think away from home, you can reasonably expect that you're not going to control the ball a lot because I think the way the Premier League has gone these days, everyone's the, everybody seems to have that sort of possession style approach. You know, there's only the odd couple of teams who will play like a, a counter-attack and sort of style at home. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it, it does severely limit. And I think that's maybe why we're seeing, you know, Bernard play at home, but not get in away because... Uh, when he's when he's playing away from home, he doesn't offer what Ancelotti is wanting, and I think he maybe wants uh, a bit more a bit more pace, uh, a bit more direct play, some uh, better defensive contributions. And for all that Bernard is very good at, I don't think he does provide them. Uh, it's interesting though because I think the, the players that he's brought in instead of Bernard haven't really been providing that either. So. You could make the arguments. Well, you might as well play Bernard if, yeah. if the players who are playing instead of him are going to put in those sorts of performances. Uh, and I do still believe that I would have started Bernard against Manchester United because uh, you know he was the one who set up that 
very late chance with a great ball through to Richarlison. But, but crucially, was that because the game had changed and we'd gone from having not much of the ball just mm. to have it, suddenly having control of it. So the environment for, for Bernard to come on, right now this suits you now. Yeah, yeah, maybe. It, it, it's a tough situation, isn't it? Because we can all see how good Bernard is. Mm. And, you know, the Crystal Palace game proved that with his great goal. I think he proved that against Newcastle in the game before as well with uh, that pass to set up Moyes Keane's goal. So, you know, we, ca- we know the kind of qualities. And I think... Gav speaks about this a lot with Bernard's, you know, the fact that he can drift four, four, inside. Two, drift inside. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. plays more more like an inside forward rather than a winger yeah. in Ancelotti's system. And I think that's a huge benefit to him. So, But uh, away from home, yeah, I think the requirements are just that little bit different. And, you know, hopefully over the next few weeks, Bernard can learn to add that to his game. And, you know, I, I, I do still feel like he's a player who does need a bit of a consistent run in the team to really hit you know, how his full effectiveness, let's say. But uh yeah, hopefully he can add this add that to his game because it's you know, it's clearly something that Ancelotti is is thinking about, definitely. But if 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 we take what Carlo said literally into the nth degree, he doesn't start any away games because we won't have the uh-huh. ball. And he won't start every home game because when Man City come we won't have the ball. We didn't have the ball for the first half against United. We might not have the ball in the derby for you know most of the game. Uh-huh. Might play fourteen. Might start fourteen <laughs> games. It's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think it's surprising as well because he works hard defensively. Mm. Bernard, he's not one of these oh, yeah. Brazilians who will just like play up front and you won't see him. He, you know, he covers back really well. One of the, one of the things I think about Bernard and the, the stats probably point this out is 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 he a ninety minute player? I mean, I'm not sure how many ninety minutes he's played for Everton, but I mean, probably counts on the fingers of one hand. To be mm. honest with you, he's either gets subbed after 70 minutes and comes on for the last 30. I can't, I can't remember him playing 90 minutes. And I'm just wondering maybe whether that's Carlo's point. Is that against the better opposition, you've got to be, you know, to show the manager can keep his options, you've got to be show that you can be at it, Yes, for want of a better phrase, for, for 90 minutes. And I'm, I just wonder whether he's got his, he's got that in, in his armoury. Uh, Bernard, um, and maybe that's where what Carlos hinting at because he does. He, ironically, he's one of the players who actually under Ancelotti has appeared to be mm. <laughs> quite suited to Ancelotti's style, style of play. So I was surprised with that that angle. What about the, the other thing managers do? Don't they do this as a bit of a kick up the pants? Don't mm, they? Possibly, yeah. It's quite. It's yeah, yeah. quite cute like that. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I really enjoyed the. Um, Jibril Sadibi at the game of the weekend, you know, where it looked like he'd broken his arm or something, you know, for those last like 10 or 15 minutes and he was struggling badly. And then Carlos giving an interview um, in, in the tunnel <laughs> oh, this, as Jibril walks brilliant. past him. And he goes, oh, Jibril, I thought you were dead. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, you know, it's like, all right, so you had a sore arm, just get on with yeah. it. You know, it's like, like you say, you know, so sort of giving you a kick up the backside. Yeah, he, is, yeah. he, he was covered in bandages yeah. when, he, when he left, but he had bandages all over his hand, his elbow. <laughs> he, he was limping. Like, he, he, he was not in a good yeah. way. As an aside, you're on the game, so he's, he's a one-man entertainment channel and himself to TV, isn't he? Yeah. on the game, you know. He's got booked, didn't he, for coming back on the pitch, yeah, didn't he, like, and stuff, you know. Even though the, yeah, the, yeah. the linesman definitely waved them on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so, that, that's a that's a dodgy book. Then, then he sort of collapsed when he made that. He sort of got his foot got caught underneath him. Now, oh, by the way, Phil, when you having your uh, quality time and you having podcast about DCL, uh, do you invite me. Does that like beers and stuff? Is it? And, if, yeah, you want to bring some yeah, yeah. finger food, prawn yeah. sandwiches. Yeah, but if you're offering to get all these in, Gav, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like offer to me. Yeah, I think that's cute. Maybe by Carlo, but I was quite surprised. But quite surprised, but not surprised. Mm. And I don't think Bernard's got 90 minutes in him. I think maybe that's what Carlo was saying. No, I've only seen it fleetingly. I'm just, there was a game, was it last season, Arsenal, where he was outstanding and he got a standing ovation as he came off. Yeah. But it was only like about a minute or two from the end of the game. Yeah. Uh, I, I, they are quite rare, uh, 90 minutes, you know, sort of matches from him. I think West Ham away was one of his best, wasn't it? Which was probably 90 minutes. But yeah. you, you don't see many of them. Maybe it's just like a cute ploy by Carlo to try and like sort of coax that a little bit more out of him because clearly his quality is there for everybody to mm-hmm. see. Okay, nearly the end of today's pod. Been a bumper one. Um, difficult news for Jenk Tosin. Uh, suffered an ACL injury and next week will undergo surgery, which will, of course, rule him out for the rest of the season. Probably the Euros as well. Um, and of course, being quite blunt and, and cold about it, it makes life difficult, Adam, um, for Everton to sell him in the summer, doesn't it? Mm. I, th- I think this is 
probably the worst news for everybody involved. You know, the player is missing out on an opportunity not just to play himself into form for the Euros, but to maybe play himself into a move in the summer. Crystal Palace are losing uh, one of their, I think, three striking options at the event. I think they're left with Benteke and Ayu as they're essentially their only senior options. And I think they've scored the second least goals in the Premier League this season, so they couldn't really be affording to lose a striker. And of course, as you say, Everton are now, you know, they've got an injured player on their hands coming back who's still probably going to be injured when the transfer window opens. You know, it just makes it that little that extra bit harder to try and offload them. You know, in the last in the last window there was the the belief that, you know, you'd be allowed to go on a permanent basis if a you know an experienced replacement could be brought in. Obviously he ended up going out on loan, but you can't imagine that the situation will have changed much in terms of what Everton are thinking in terms of this summer. But it, yeah, it just does make it that harder. Palace had that uh, clause as well. And they uh, sounded quite option, keen. Yeah, that option to, Steve, to buy him. Yeah. Steve Parrish seemed fairly fairly keen on that, you know, if he could have kept his form up. So, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just a, a really frustrating thing for Everton. You know, he's still got two years left on his contract. So, you know, if he can play, his, you know, if he can get himself fit again, you know, maybe maybe get some minutes here and there and, you know, maybe try and get himself into the shop window uh, ready for, well, hope, you'd hope by the end of the summer, but if not then, then the next January window. But then again, you, you're losing out on, you know, the I'm presuming the option to buy for, for Palace would have been a fairly... A fairly decent price for 20 us. Million. Twenty million. Twenty million. Go for twenty million yeah, in twelve months' time. Isn't see, it? we would have only lost seven million on him in that case. That would have been, that would have been a truly a best case scenario for us. Like as as you say, we're not going to get anywhere near that uh, for uh, if we sell him in the future now. So yeah, it's, it, it, it's frustrating for Everton, but I think you know it's only going to be more frustrating for him as well because he doesn't. Want of to course, be, he doesn't want to be sat on the sidelines no. either, no. does he? So yeah, just fingers crossed he can. He doesn't suffer any sort of setbacks from from now until his recovery. Hopefully, his recovery goes as smoothly as possible, and uh, he can get back onto the pitches as soon as he possibly can. You've got a feel for the player here, though, haven't you? Mm. I know we've had conversations of the last couple of days about Tosin. Quite highly is being about the club, but you know you've got to feel sorry for the player. Mm. You know, he's twenty eight. Might be his last only opportunity to have a you know major championship appearance. And uh, you know that that's not going to happen. They're talking about these six to nine months has been mooted. I think uh, or, so. That takes out, I'd say, Adam minimum September yeah. through to to January. Mm. You know, really. So I just feel really sorry for the players. Never play. You know, yes. um, at the end of the day, he appears to be a decent fella. I'm, I'm you know gutted for him. To be honest with you, mm. um, we've not had the best of luck, have we? As a club, we started last week's pod talking about Snyder, and, and um, <laughs> it's just crazy. You know, there's, been, there's been a few, hasn't there, over the last sort of six to twelve months? So, so, something we'll uh, we'll look at in, in in the coming weeks. But on on the way up to Finch Farm um, this afternoon, just going through the squad. And try to think of the players who haven't had an injury this season. Yeah. And I know every squad has injuries, but there's not many. I have more quality time on the pod, Phil, with about that subject <laughs> as well, wasn't it? Well, it was, the, it was the reverse last year, wasn't it? I think we were saying last year that, I mean, I don't know this, but the stats bear me out. We hardly had any injuries, if mm. you recall, last year. That we tended to have a fully fittish squad for most of the campaign. But since since the summer, it's been a little bit of a... Bit of a nightmare. Normally, when you see these issues last season, yeah, yeah. Normally, when you see a run like that, you automatically, you know, so think about training techniques and things being done correctly on the training pitch. But in these circumstances, they are trauma injuries, you know, that you can't really do a great deal about, and it's just misfortune, unfortunately. Okay, uh, before we wrap up, uh, customary predictions time. Gav, at the end of the table, start with you. Chelsea versus Everton, two o'clock on Sunday. Um, go back to maybe a couple of weeks ago we were talking about this run of four games we said what's your target maybe five six points we've got one with two games left Derby's are nailed on three points obviously <laughs> uh, at the moment <laughs> <laughs> now I, I think it would be a shame given the performances against Arsenal and Man United that we'd be we will do enough to win one of these four yes. games I think it'll be a shame if we don't I think we're underperforming so I've got to go for a win on on uh, on Sunday, so one in five, they won the Premier League. I was having a look last night. They've lost four out of the last eight home games in the in the, in, in the league. 
Um, and we've not done the double. And Penna would remember this last time we did the double over Chelsea, 78 79. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Duncan McKenzie's going to get good at some park here. Yeah, for Chelsea, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, I think um, I'm going to fancy us on fancy us on Sunday um, and keeps us in the hunt as well. Score? I want to go 2 0 for the Mighty Blues. First yeah. clean sheet, yeah, in yeah, yeah. Well. We haven't had, yeah. Happy days. Jordan, Jordan being Jordan will have an absolute you know, 10 on 10 performance. Yeah, yeah. yeah because Excellent. it's just been like that, yeah. Ad? Uh, after seeing how we defended against Arsenal, I, I can't go for a clean yeah. sheet. Uh, but I agree that Chelsea at home certainly have been less than you'd expect this season. Uh, they've got some injury issues they as have, well. They? Yes. Uh, missing Kovacic, missing Jorginho, missing Kante. So they've got, got a midfield crisis. Uh, could be without Willian as well. So Hopefully playing Kepa. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you hope Everton can take advantage of that and I'm going to go for a 2-1 Everton win. Wow. Um, <laughs> no pressure, Dave. No well, pressure, if you remember yeah. this time last week, I sat in here and told you quite specifically what was going to happen. I said, with it being the anniversary of Dixie Dean's passing, it was going to be a 2-1 Everson win and the person wearing number nine was going to score one of the goals. And But for some clown sat in a porter cabin in you know Stockley <laughs> Park, that would have been absolutely spot yeah. on. Uh, I'm not quite so confident uh, as you two, uh, largely because of our record at Stamford Bridge, you know, it's so long since Everton have won there. I, well, I, I was the Everton correspondent. It was that long ago when we won their last <laughs> pull ride out with a header from Anders' little outside of the foot cross way back in 1994, I think it was. Uh, it's got to change sometime. And yeah, I like the the feeling that, you know, Chelsea haven't got, you know, a fully functioning midfield at the moment. I watched the game in midweek, obviously, and yeah, Kepa's, you know, an accident waiting to happen. I'm not going to be as bold. I'm going to go for a draw. I think a 1-1 one, one draw. Um Calvert-Lewin again, just keeping that incredible yeah. scoring run going. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we'll. I think Gab's right. I think the performances ultimately will tell, and we will get a victory on Sunday. Sorry. And uh, one nil, clean sheet, yeah. one nil. Yeah, classic Italian one nil. Yeah, Love just it, yeah. Carlo reminding uh, Chelsea what they're missing out on. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent chaps, thank you very much for your company and opinions. Excellent as always. Must uh, must clarify no handshakes in the recording of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, We're actually uh, sat in four corners of the room, well, just away from each other. All on Skype. <laughs> Excellent. And thank you very much for listening. This has been the Royal Blue Podcast. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.